0: All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Chinese Church in Christ, South Valley. It's good to see you all today. Um, If you've been with us, you know we have been in a series through the book of Exodus called Worship in the Wilderness, and that series is going to conclude today. Now, uh, Exodus is a gigantic book. We haven't read every verse and every chapter um, from where we were last time when Daniel talked to us about. The Ten Commandments, we're going to skip ahead a few chapters because we want to finish our series in the book of Exodus uh, about worshiping God in the wilderness with a very famous story um, that we're going to read about today in chapter 32. So if I say to you, how many of you remember at least some part of the story of the golden calf? Raise your hand. A lot of us are relatively familiar with the golden calf, right? Right. Got a picture here uh, of just something I could find on the internet of a, a, you know, a calf or a cow that's made out of gold. I actually don't know where this is from. It's just something that the internet helped me find, right? And so um, if you know the story of the golden calf, we're going to get into it. We're going to talk about it. But this became an object of worship for God's people, much to their their own faults and uh, to this dismay of Moses and also God. Um, but uh, if it became an object of their worship, this, you know, like somewhat harmless looking like object of like kind of like had all this power then if people were willing to kind of bow themselves at it. So I was thinking, what, what kind of reminds us of something where it's like, it's just this uh, object that we look at and somehow it commands all this power. And I thought of, next slide. All right, how many of you know what this is? Raise your hand. Okay. All the all the young people are like trying not to raise their hands cuz they don't want the older people to know they've like watched this show, right? And so this co- <laughs> Peggy's like, "Really? I don't care." Yeah. So this is the statue from the ep- the first episode in Squid Games, right? And if you know the story, like I mean, I debated whether I would say this cuz like some of you young people I'm like I don't want to introduce you to the idea of what Squid Game is, but actually, the more I thought about it and the more I've talked to you over this year, I think it's the younger people who are actually more familiar with this than, than, than many. Um, but if you remember, spoiler alert, it's pretty old, and, you, you know, don't, I don't know if you want to watch it anyway. It's pretty violent. But in the first episode of Squid Game, they're playing red light, green light, right? Like the children's game, but this is the statue, and she turns her head away, and then you're supposed to run towards her, right? But if you're moving at all, then it's a very violent show, right? You know how it goes. If you are moving, when she turns her head back, this giant statue, then you're then you're dead, right? Like, that's how kind of shocking this show was. So for both the image of the golden calf and also, like, the doll had a name. Does anyone know her name? Okay, I heard it somewhere. Hee, right? That's the Korean name. I don't know what it means or why they named her this or whatever, but she actually had a name. I don't know if it's meant to to show that she's more alive or whatever. But both of them are at least somewhat inanimate objects, right? I guess He would, like, turn her head, but it had to be, like, you know, electronic or something. They're both, like, very, like, in and of themselves, kind of harmless-looking and even somewhat, like, I don't know, like, they're, they're not a normal thing you would look at. But both of them have this great power, and I would say a deathly power at that. Now, if you've watched the show, you know how young he has this power of, that brings about death. And I would say what we're going to read about with the golden calf is that it is also this image that people look at that brings about death, but in a very different kind of way. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's going to be a somber but important and hopefully a helpful way for us to wrap up our series as we think about the story of the golden calf. Because I think there's a lot we can learn from it to kind of wrap up our series and what we've been learning about um, worshiping God in the wilderness. And so I want to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians that we've shared with you a few times. But this is the Apostle Paul who's talking about why all of this in Exodus is important in the first place. And we've read this a few times, but just to wrap it all up today, uh, we see that the Apostle Paul writes, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying the book of Exodus and the stories that come from the first five books of the Bible and and throughout the Old Testament, the stories of God's relationship with his people, they are written for our benefit to learn from so that when we experience the wilderness of our own lives, that we know how to worship Him. When we started this series, I asked, like, how would we define the idea of wilderness? And Jaden said outside of civilization, which is a good kind of picture of uh, what we think of when it comes to wilderness. We think of it from a very natural perspective. Um, and, uh, but I think, really, when we think about the idea of wilderness, it doesn't just have to be in nature but it's not, be, it's not necessarily only being outside of civilization, but I think the way we want to define wilderness to wrap up this series is to, to think about how are ways where our circumstances outside of our control? Because that's how it was for God's people. They're wandering in the physical wilderness, yes, but they don't know what the next day holds. Sometimes they don't know where the food and water is going to come from. They don't know where safety is going to come from. And so to finish up this series, we want to remind ourselves how we're defining wilderness is it's not a location where it's outside of the city or wherever or out in nature, but really the idea of wilderness is something that's beyond our control. And knowing how to worship God is very important when we find ourselves in those seasons. I I think... Well, Pastor Peter's here today, so this might not work, but I was going to say I think I go outside of physical civilization more than anyone else in this room because I like going outdoors, I like hiking, I like doing outdoor stuff, but Pastor Peter's here, Uncle Wesley's here. I think both of them have me beat. They, you know, they'll hike or fish like much greater distances than I will, but the point is even though maybe only a few of us are used to going out into nature, all of us experience the wilderness in our own ways and in our own lives, where there are uncertain parts of our future where we want to learn how to trust God with them. And that's why we've been going through this series, and that's why finishing with the story of the golden calf, I think, is really important for us today. Um, Normally, we read the the scripture at the beginning, but there's so many verses, I want to, in order to save time, I want to go through each each part of it piece by piece rather than rereading it. So we're going to go from start to finish in Exodus 32. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. It'll be up here on the screen. Um, but we're going to see three, um, three pictures of faith in this story. So we're going to see the fickle faith of the Israelites. They waver back and forth, and they have trouble trusting God. We're going to see the firm faith of Moses, the leader, uh, the leader of God's people, and how he lives out his faith in the midst of the wilderness. And then we're going to see the, foundation, the very foundation of faith, which is God. And so all of these different pictures of how we can consider worshiping God in the wilderness are going to be important for us as we understand the story and as we wrap up this series. So first, what do we mean by the fickle faith of the Israelites? And that will connect us to the start of our passage. So if you've got your Bibles, we're starting in verse 1 in chapter 32. And so the, the chapter starts off by saying this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So, last time we were in Exodus, we were in chapter 20. So now we're in chapter 32, and in order to understand how all this is connected, we need to know what's happened between where we last were when Daniel was talking about the Ten Commandments and how we should have no other gods before us. And now here in chapter 32. So Moses has gone up and down the mountain to converse with God. And God gives him this idea of the Ten Commandments to take back to his people. And then in the course of the chapters in between this, Moses is going back up to converse with God. And he's going to get the commandments written on the two stone tablets, right? Where it's engraved these ten uh, commandments that God's given. So he's going back up. And so th- the last thing p- the people said before Moses goes back up the mountain to go and converse with God is they say, they've heard of the idea of the t- 10 commandments and they say, all that you've commanded us, we will do. It's not the first time that people have said this. Uh, We've seen this before where when Moses originally went up Mount Sinai to converse with God, when he came down and shared a message with the people, the people were very obedient to the idea of wanting to follow God and to serve God. And that was the last thing they said until here in verse 1. And so Moses goes up, and God is giving him all these instructions beyond just the Ten Commandments, uh, how they're going to build the, um, the future tabernacle, what Aaron, the priest, Moses' uh, uh, brother who's going to be helping him you know, organize everything and has been with him, like what kind of robe is he supposed to wear? There's all these instructions for worship that God is giving Moses. And in the meantime, the people are saying, what's taking so long? Where's Moses. The last thing they said several chapters before was, all that God has commanded us to do, we want to do it. But by now, they say, where is Moses? Why is he taking so long? Hey, Aaron, why don't you make us a God that we can see? Because Moses clearly isn't coming back anytime soon, and he's taking a while, right? And so this shows us a lot about our human thinking when we have to wait for something or when we're not sure like what our future holds, um, and it's, it shows a lot about the people's reaction here within, this, uh, within the wilderness. And so what it shows us, it shows us a few things. It's, we'll talk about how they struggle to wait for Moses, but the first thing you see from their response is they want a God that they can see, and that's how we come up with the golden calf, right? They say, make us gods who shall go before us, Now, they have seen the powerful effects that God has done before uh, when when he parts the Red Sea. Um, But this shows us that in this moment, in the wilderness, they want some direction from something they can see. And it also shows us, secondly then, that they're very impatient. They want God to respond to them on their time. They're tired of waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. And so we can see they want to see something visual, and they also want it to happen on their timing. They say Moses is taking too long. Now, what's interesting about this is I would say that God's people actually at different points do have a God that they can see. They can't physically see God himself, but they saw the Red Sea parted when the Egyptians were coming after them to kill them, and in that moment, when their lives were on the line, they could see the dry ground that they walked through, and in that moment, the power, the tr- the power and the truth of God was clearly seen by them, right? When they were dying of thirst, walking through the desert, when they were hungry and wondering where their next meal would come from, they could see the water that appeared when Moses would strike the rock. They would see the manna that was on the ground in the morning when they would wake up and the quail that would come in the evening that they could grab and, and, and eat um, for food. In those moments, they can see how God provides. But then in the next moment where they can't see God, they want to see something visual again. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from this before we go too deep into what happens, because it goes downhill from here. Um, A lot of times when our questions aren't immediately answered, we turn to something else other than just being able to wait patiently for what that response might be. When our needs aren't immediately met, we get impatient. We turn to other things. And so here, there's no mention of, okay, they're starving to death or they're dying of thirst. We've seen that written before. There's probably some worry about their future and what's happening, but there's no immediate need. And yet, even in this moment, they, they're they tired of waiting for Moses to come down and speak on God's behalf to them to the point where they are willing to create another God, a visible God that they can see and that can bring some meaning into their life. That's how impatient they are here. And so, I would say uh, it's interesting because I think many times for us, when we think we have a need, there are moments where things are really serious in our lives. Like maybe we haven't experienced what it's like to be in a physical life and death situation the way the Israelites were when they walked across the Red Sea. But there are crisis moments in our lives for sure. But I would say a lot of times we act like every moment is a crisis, or we need the answer to something at every, at every point, at every moment. And this is where I don't think the internet and Google and technology has done us any favors. And the reason for that is a lot of times if we have a question and we want to know the answer, we can immediately figure it out, right? For all you young people, I'm old enough to remember when we might have a question and we couldn't just immediately Google, like, what the answer is, right? Um, when I was a kid, my parents would make me go to sleep early and so if, uh, if I was watching a basketball game on TV, and it would have to not be on cable because we didn't pay for cable, right? It was just on the like basic TV uh, pla- plan, but the games usually started at 7.30 and the first half would be over by 8.30 and then my parents would make me go to sleep. And I wouldn't know who would win the game until the next morning. Now if we miss something, we just, you know, take out our phones, we can Google whatever we want and we get an immediate answer. And I think sometimes that affects our thinking to the point where we think God is supposed to be that way for us, where we want immediate answers to every situation that comes up in our lives. But in this moment, God's people had seen how God had provided for them over and over again, multiple times. There were visual representations. But for them, when Moses takes a while and delays a while while God is giving him all of these regulations that is meant to help govern them as, a, as, a, as his people and as a society, They get impatient. And what do they do? It leads them to making what I would say is definitely a bad decision. And so when we get impatient, wanting things on our own timing and on our own terms often leads us to bad decisions. And what is that bad decision? Let's read about it as we keep going in in this chapter. So they say, Aaron, make us some gods that we can see because we don't know what's going on with Moses. And this is what Aaron says. Take off the ring, Verse 2, "'Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me.' So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, "'These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt.' When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, "'Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord.' And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So Aaron takes some initiative here while the people are waiting for Moses. It's not a good decision. Um, But in that moment, now they have this golden calf that they can see. And for, for, for some reason... They start to believe that this is the physical representation or this is the actual representation of the God that led them out of Egypt, right? And so um, it's an occasion for them to eat and drink and be merry. And it kind of shows us that a lot of times when we want things on our own terms, we get what we want. They now have a God that they can see. They have an answer to, okay, this is the God who somehow led us out of Egypt, even though it was just created out of all the jewelry, which seems strange, right? Right? Well, for that moment everything is fine but the truth is if god is real and he really is who the bible teaches us that he is then he sees all of our short-sighted impatient decisions and that's what happens as god is corresponding with moses up on the hill and so let's read what god says to moses in verse says verse 7 the lord said to moses go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of egypt have corrupted themselves They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Where we left off in chapter 20, Daniel was sharing with us about the Ten Commandments and what was the first of the Ten Commandments that God gives to his people. You shall have no other gods before me. So it's not too much longer after that that God's people have forgotten. We would say that the first commandment kind of sets the tone for all the others. Um, If you were here last week, we heard a really wonderful message from a friend of ours, Edwin Lynn, Daniel's brother-in-law. And he shared with us that through the Lord's Prayer and through how it shows that the whole purpose of the law is God's way of ultimately wanting to reveal himself to us. It's not only a group of rules that we're supposed to follow that we often can get very legalistic about, but it's a way where it shows us God's heart. And when you really know his heart, you see, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, not only are we not supposed to kill someone else, but we also want to deal with the anger that we have because that shows us truly the heart of God and how he wants to relate to us and how we are going to relate to one another. And so... If this first commandment was there to kind of set the tone for all the other commandments, the people have already broken that first commandment. If the first commandment is, you should have no other gods before me, the moment the people have to wait a little bit, they send all their jewelry into the fire and out comes this golden calf, and now there is another God before the one true God who is conversing with Moses up on the mountain. And so the people's actions and the actions of Aaron, um, it goes against the first and most important uh, commandment, and so in a moment we'll get into the next parts of what I think we can learn. But this shows us the fickleness of God's people. I'm not saying they didn't worship God at moments or they didn't try to follow God. You see the ways where they've uh, where they've genuinely tried to remember Him and to worship Him at various points in our series. But it shows us the fickleness that can often mark human lives, where in one moment we say, "God, I want to worship You, I want to follow You," but in the next moment we can say. But God, you're not answering my prayers on my timetables, so I'm gonna to turn to other solutions to try to give me meaning about my life or to try to make me happy. And that's the fickleness that, that often is a part of our lives as humans. And so before we move on to see how firm Moses' faith is and how God is really truly the foundation of our faith, um, we should ask ourselves, how do we relate with God's people here? Do we want a God that we can see? Do we want a God that works on our timing and not his? And it can be very subtle because I don't think any of us have like gone out and put a bunch of jewelry into a fire and bowed down to a golden calf recently. I don't think anyone in here has done that. But many times our version of God is, God, I need you to do this in my life. Fill in the blank, right? And that's what we trust God for. And when God makes us wait, which I think if you talk to anyone who's been following God for a long time, there are seasons where God is doing exactly what we're hoping he does, and then there are also seasons where sometimes he wants us to learn a particular lesson where the answer we're looking for doesn't immediately just become readily available. And so do we want a God that we can see? Do we want a God who shows up on our own timing? And I think another way to ask that question is to ask, what ultimately fulfills us? Is God only real if He gives us what we want or if He gives it to us on our on our own timing, or do we trust that God is real and knows has our best interests at hand? How many life and death situations have god 's people been through at this point? Their lives are in danger at the Red sea they're dying of hunger they're dying of thirst over and over again when their needs are at their worst, you see how God provides for them and yet in this moment they want to do some they want to worship a completely other God because Moses is taking too long, or they've lost hope in in what God might do. We don't know all the reasons why they would why they would uh, jump to this uh, these rash actions. But it's something that we can learn from when we think of our own uh, human tendency to want things on our time and on our terms. And so perhaps one point of application for us is to know, hey, not every moment of our lives is meant to be like the Red Sea. There's going to be emergency situations or chaos, chaotic situations in our lives where we need to trust God and we're going to see how he shows up out of the ordinary and delivers us. And when I think about many ways that God has worked in the past, I see how often I can be just like these people where it's like, God, I know you answered this prayer way back a while ago, but how come you're not answering my prayers right now when I need it at this moment? And a lot of times I think we can make every situation that we have some kind of big emergency where we need God to answer us on our own timing. But here, the people's problem is they take matters into their own hands and they don't wait for Moses to come down the mountain because they want a God that they can see. And so part of, part of worshiping God in the wilderness is being able to hear God's voice when nothing is going on, when we, aren't, when we don't have an answer we immediately need, and not just jumping to the conclusion to say, well, I need something else because God is not answering on my own timing. And so I think that's really something we can learn from what we see from the fickleness of the faith of God's people. Um, for the the firmness of Moses' faith and God, the foundation of our faith, I wish there was a way in this in the the verses that follow to separate these nicely into like point two and point three, because you guys know I like to be kind of organized in how I present it. But really you're going to see both of those things on display over the course of the rest of the passage. So there's not going to be a neat transition between point two and point three. There might be in the slides, but that's that's not accurate to how we're going to read about it. We're going to see both the firmness of Moses' faith and also who God is in the midst of the wilderness here as we read on from this point. Right, so we left off in verse. We left off in verse eight, and so this is what God says to Moses after He helps him see that this is what God's people have turned to. they they've created this golden calf and they're worshiping it. So let's keep reading in verse nine. And the Lord said to Moses, "I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people." Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So what we see here is in consequence to the actions of God's people, they've taken the first commandment and completely disregarded it at this moment. It seems like God is only interested in creating a people that follow Moses just individually at this point, where he says that I may make a great nation of you. It seems based on what's written, that God is done with the people who are now worshiping this golden calf, and he wants to kind of start over with just Moses. And this is what Moses says in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? It seems like God is furious with the people who are now worshiping this golden calf. But Moses, as their leader, a person who wants to be firm in his faith, he stands up for his people. And by no means is he arguing that what they're doing is good or what they're doing is right. But he tries to reason with God where he says, can you think about what it would look like for the Egyptians if the people of Israel were freed from slavery, but then they just all died out here, out in the wilderness? Like, what would the point of that be? If the point of the people of Israel was to be this beacon of people that were God's people that other nations could look upon and see who God really was, how would that actually work if they all just die here in the wilderness? So Moses is using some logic to try to help defend his people even though they've been bowing down to this golden calf. And God listens. And it says in verse 14, God relented from the disaster that he had spoken of. And Moses, being willing to stand up for his people here, Shows us the firmness of his faith, how much he loves his people, and how much he's willing to go to bat for them, even though what they're doing is incredibly evil. But what we're going to see next is that even Moses' uh, Moses's, uh, kind of love and care for his people has its limits. It's one thing when he hears about God saying, look at how wicked the people are, and then Moses goes down the mountain and sees this, verse 15. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So Moses, being the advocate for, the, for his people, it's one thing when he hears they're doing something wrong, but then he goes down the mountain and he sees it for himself. And he's so angry that he throws down the two tablets that he had gone up the mountain to get from God in the beginning with the, with the Ten Commandments engraved on them, and he throws them down out of his anger for what he sees. And so it's one thing when God says, there's this golden calf that they're like, these people you're standing up for? Like, you should see what they're doing right now. And Moses is reasoning with him and trying to defend his people, and then Moses himself goes down the mountain and he sees what he sees, and it angers him. Now, I think this teaches us a lot about Moses' faith. To really believe in and trust God, um, whether it's in the wilderness or just in general, you have to value what God says and how he wants us to relate to him. If Moses had shared with the people this, the first and greatest commandment is, you shall have no other gods before, before me, it seems like God is willing to relent and listen to Moses. But there's got to be, like, there's got to be some value to the fact that God has said, look, You should have no other gods before you. And as the people are worshiping something else, it's not, Moses, yes, wants to defend his people, but it's not just that he's, it's not just that he's trying to defend his people. When he sees it actually happening, where they're worshiping this created image, this created golden calf, he gets angry. Why? Because Moses himself cares deeply about what God has shared with his people, He knows there's a reason for why God says, I am your God. You should have no other gods that you're worshiping. That means something to Moses. And that means it's something worth getting angry over, right? A person of, and what it shows us is Moses being a person of firm faith in God, being the leader of God's people here. He doesn't just let his people do whatever they want to do with no consequence. There has to be some understanding for the wrong that they're doing. And the value of the object of their faith, as Moses values God being the only God that Israel should worship, that's what leads him into this anger when he sees his people worshiping this created being. And so what this teaches us about being someone who has strong faith in the wilderness experiences of our lives, to be a person of firm faith is to value the things that the Lord does and to see how those might be important. Um, I don't know how many of you were heartbroken at the start of this week watching the news of, of yet another school shooting in Nashville at a Christian a Christian school, right? And when I was watching the news, I've, I feel like I've seen this situation happen so many times now in our world where you just can't help but be heartbroken because you know this is not like students going to school and being in the face of danger like an armed person with... Uh, you know, walking in and and just being able to walk into the school and take the lives of some of the school children, we know that deep down, somehow we know that's not how it's supposed to be. And it angers us. And it should. Because if it didn't anger us, that would mean we don't have, we just don't have a firm sense of, of what's right and wrong. And that's why Moses gets so angry here when he comes down the mountain because he's saying, look, the first and most important commandment of God, it's just not so God can say, oh, look, ha, you broke the rules. I knew you were going to. It's because he wants to reveal his heart to his people. And he shares, honor your parents, honor the Sabbath, uh, don't commit adultery, don't steal from one another. All of these things are meant to help us understand the heart of who God is. And they're extremely important. And especially the first one. And that's why when Moses comes down the mountain and he sees God's people worshiping, his own people worshiping this golden calf, he's angry. And he should be. And when we see evil in our world, oftentimes we're angry. And that's good because it shows us that there's something worth caring about in that moment. And so then what does Moses do next? He goes and he confronts Aaron. This part's quite humorous, in my opinion, even though the situation is serious. In verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. So Aaron's deflecting all the the guilt onto the people, right? For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Um, I'm not super good at understanding things scientifically, but it seems quite strange that you would just throw a bunch of gold into the fire, and then out would come this, this statue that's formed in the shape of a calf. I just, I don't think that's how, like, welding works or, like, how, like, something that's gold that, like, gets transformed, I don't think that's how it works. Now. Putting aside that I don't have a scientific brain, if we just go back, if we're going to trust that what's written in God's word that's been passed down from generation to generation is true, you'll remember in the earlier verses that we saw, it seems like Aaron takes a very active role in how this image is shaped when all the gold comes to him as the person who's at least in charge in that moment. And this is what sin does to us very often. When we don't want to take ownership of something wrong that we do, we come up with some other explanation, right? Aaron's explanation is, I put all the gold in the fire and out came this calf, which must have sounded really ridiculous to Moses in this moment. And so let's keep reading. In verse 25, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And so what happens is Moses, after witnessing all this, it's a way where he says, hey, look, who still wants to worship God? And the sons of Levi all raise their hands and come towards him. Okay? Now, what we see here as they are killing the person on their left and on their right This is not easy for us to understand when we read the Bible. And I think we need to have some understanding of what society was like back then and what we can learn from it today. This is not the only place where God's people are commanded to kill someone else in the Old Testament. And you could say, Dan, you just got up here and said we should be angry about school shootings that we've witnessed in the news this week. How can both of these be true? And so let's see, let's think about this for a moment. There's some, there's some details that we need to get straight to make some sense of what's happening here. It says about 3,000 men fell that day. Um, when you, uh, commentators who have studied the, the people of Israel who are wandering in the wilderness, uh, they estimate that Moses had led some two million people out of Egypt, right? And so if it's the sons of Levi who come and say, hey, we're willing to stand up for what's right, and Moses is saying, you're going to kill this person on your left and on your right. And it says 3,000 people died that day. This is not to say that each individual life doesn't matter or have val- human value, because it does. But there are 3,000 people that it seemed that day that were just no longer going to be a part of God's people. It, and the way the math works out is, the, you know, the sons of Levi, seemingly there's a lot of them, um, and their descendants... But it seems like in the midst of two million people, commentators speculate, we don't know this for sure, but that there is a group of people that were so against what God was trying to do that didn't want to repent of their ways at all in the face of this golden calf situation that needed to be dealt with so God's people could continue to flourish and move on as a society. All right? Now, um... When I've, when I've studied the passages that deal with God commanding violence in the Old Testament, I do think there's a very good explanation for it. That's important for us to think about how we want to make sense of this. Um, in, in the, on the moment, at the moment Jesus dies on the cross, Matthew 27, 51 tells us this. So Jesus is on the cross. He's been crucified. And after leaving his last breath, this is what happens in the temple. It says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. God's intention for wanting to seriously deal with sin, I think, was true back then and is still true today. But the form of how it's dealt with, I believe, has changed with the death of Jesus Christ. And so when God's people, as they're fighting themselves off and trying to form themselves as a society, in a very violent society, there were many times where they had to kill someone or be killed. It was that serious. On this side of the cross, I believe the seriousness of how God deals with our sin is dealt with with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once and for all. And so the way I interpret the violent violent, uh, decrees that God gives his people in the Old Testament is to say, on this side of the cross, I don't believe God would ever command us to do something like that today. Why? Because the seriousness of sin is dealt with through the person of Jesus now. But at this point in the Old Testament, as God's people were living in a kill or be killed society, these were the people that... Uh, their time was up in terms of being a part of the, of the nation of Israel. I know it's a, it's a sensitive topic for us because it's hard for us sometimes to see the difference when we see these passages that talk about violence, but I really do think that Jesus' death on the cross changes how we see how sin should be dealt with. Sin should be dealt with just as importantly as it was back then, but now it's dealt with in a different form. Where we we need to turn to Jesus, ask for his his forgiveness, and repent and say, God, I want to follow you and see how our lives may change on on this side of the cross. And so I think that's really important as we see this situation that happens here amongst God's people. But it shows us the seriousness of how God values uh, this commandment that he is their God and how he wants the people to follow him. And we see one more picture of Moses' faith on display at the end of the chapter. We see this in verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, God, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And I believe that's referring to those that have already been put to death here. But now go and lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And we see how God is not taking his presence away from the people of Israel, even though they've committed this great sin, But you see how Moses is so willing to defend his people. He says, God, I know what these people are doing. I know what they've just done. I know how wrong it is. Will you forgive them? Will you relent from your anger? But God, if you won't, would you put me with them? And you see how much Moses wants to lay down his life for his people here. And it shows us the firmness of Moses' faith, that he believes God is in the utmost control here in the wilderness. God's people couldn't wait for Moses to come down the mountain, but Moses, his trust in what God says is right and wrong is so much so that he says, God, if you've had it with these people, will you get rid of me as well? And it's a really amazing picture of Moses' faith. And God, if, you, if we're paying attention to how God responds, God doesn't say, okay, Moses, I'll, I'll listen to what you're saying. Because he doesn't let him, he doesn't let Moses lose his life in this moment. He says, my angel will go on with you. And if you read on, this is the last passage we're going to read in our series. But if you read on, there are future parts of God's uh, relationship with his people in the wilderness. Throughout the, book of, the rest of the book of Exodus and into the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And we see how what verse 34 says, that my angel shall go before you, comes true. And God continues to give to, to be with his people as they are in, exile, uh, in the wilderness, right? And so when, when we think about uh, the power of, I said, you know, if you've watched Squid Games, you've seen the power of the statue and what it represents, right? It represents death. And if you've watched the show, you can see what that represents. We might not see it on the surface level, but hopefully we can see now why it was so serious that God's people would create a God out of gold that they would want to worship, Because it meant that God really didn't mean that much to them if they were willing to worship this other God and not be patient to wait upon God's timing. And so I think when we watch a show like Squid Game, we can be fascinated with it um, and and even enjoy the creativity of it, even though it's a terribly violent show, because we know it's fictional, right? Um, But in the same way that both of these two images, the doll that brings death, the golden calf that led to a a death of relationship for the people um, in their faith with God in a lot of ways. We have a similar image that we can trust in that this time of year represents so much when we think about what we're going to celebrate this year. There's the golden calf, there's the doll, right? But there's this picture of the cross that we're going to celebrate this year on Easter, as we do every year, right? But if we don't understand the significance and the seriousness of the cross then I think we might the, the, um, the power of what Easter represents might be lost on us. And if I'm saying that there's a different way that God deals with sin outside of the violence that he used in the Old Testament, because that was the, kind of the timing and the circumstances of his people, I really do believe that when we choose to worship other things or when we choose to be impatient and not wait upon God's timing, it's a way where we bring the concept of death into our relationship with God where we're not able to experience all of the blessings that he wants us to. And that's what Easter represents. It's a chance for us to remember how powerful the cross is, that when it comes to our sin, as much as we laugh at Aaron's response, we are very much like Aaron, as much as we think about the people and all the lengths they went to to worship the golden calf, that we have a lot of similarities to that, and that we need a Savior who loves us and forgives us. For the 3,000 men who were put to death in the camp at this time, their time was up. The amazing thing about our God is for us right now at this moment, our time is not up to be able to worship him, to be able to turn and say, God, I want to worship you. I want to trust in your timing. I want you to be my God. And when we can come to that kind of place where we're willing to say those things, I believe when we go through our own wilderness, where circumstances are out of our control, where we're struggling to find answers, then we can truly worship him in the wilderness and see how his timing and his his truth will be good for us. And so we will go through future wilderness. But as we do, hopefully what we've seen from going through the book of Exodus It's taught us exactly what the Apostle Paul was hoping when he wrote about the importance of Exodus in 1 Corinthians 10, that we will not stop worshiping God even when our circumstances are out of our control. When we started this series, we called it Worship in the Wilderness. And um, when you think of the word worship, what worship really means, a lot of times we think worship is what we do for 15 minutes before the sermon on Sundays, but musical worship is really only one part of it. The word worship, it means to give worth to in its most literal form. And so when we are struggling in our own wilderness, will we give worth to God by trusting upon his timing and believing that he he knows what he's doing and he's leading us to a place that we need to be? When we are uncertain of of our futures or in need of a God to save us, can we not turn to our own ideas, our own timing, but let us turn to the one who intentionally dealt with the power of sin and death so that we can trust that God will be with us in the wilderness. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. God, I know this is not an easy passage for us to, um, to understand. God, it's probably even more difficult for us to um, believe that you are with us in the moments where you might feel far away. And yet, Lord, I I pray that we can learn from these passages that we've read that when we go through our own wilderness experiences in our own lives, that we can turn to you and say, God, thank you for loving me, for being my Savior, for showing up for me in ways that I've seen you do in in the past. And Lord, will that lead me into a greater trust in you right now and in moments where we might be in even deeper wilderness than we might be right now? Lord, we thank you that you love us this much and that this week as we celebrate um, the, both the death but also the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would know how much that represents the hope that you want to bring into our lives and that we could see the relationship that we have with you. So God, we thank you for all that we've been able to, um, to see in this series. And Lord, I pray the lessons of trusting you in the wilderness, um, God, would be true for us in our lives. We thank you for this time. We love you. and pray this in Jesus' name.